This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 31st of July 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem, anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my YouTube-friendly co-host, Jon. <laughs> you got to let that out of the, out of the bag just from the start of it already? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting right out there immediately. I do like the fact that we can invite our listeners to see us. Well, yes. Okay, um, let's let's go with that. Will we'll, <laughs> we'll have seen us? Yeah, in, in, inflict inflict ourselves <laughs> on them. Um, yes. So this is this is going to be a bit of a different episode. Yes. Um, for those of you that have been uh, following, you know, LinkedIn posts and other uh, methods of communication, you will have seen uh, the fact that we. Did a session at a Code Motion event um, conference back in wow, when was it now? Uh, last month, I think. Yeah, uh, well, ninth of May. Maybe even before that, actually. Couple, anyway, a couple of months ago, uh, in Amsterdam, Code Motion uh, reached out to us and said, "Hey, would you like to do do basically a version of the podcast, but live?" So we went, "Yeah, sure, sure, we will." Um, and so we did. We had a, a forty-minute or so slot, and we just gave. A, it was more to a sort of a DevOps audience. So rather than going across you know, some of our more big data-focused, um, more specific topics, we really just gave a, an update on you know the state of big data, what what's happening at the moment, what some people are doing. Uh, we talked about things like security and governance and and kind of the key topic areas. Um, and uh, so this is the audio stream of the YouTube uh, version that is already out there. So if you've already listened to or already watched on YouTube the uh, the Code Motion event, nothing uh, thank new you. here. Please please like it and subscribe it and all that other YouTube related stuff. <laughs> uh, if you haven't, uh, then feel free to to listen in right with us now. Yeah, one thing to keep in mind is uh, that it's a presentation with a huge PowerPoint uh, uh, slide collection attached to it. Uh, if I remember correctly, we had four slides and yeah, they had like, like four that. words on each slide. <laughs> that was it. So if yeah. you're not seeing it, all you're missing is uh, the visual aspect of Dave and me. You're not going to be missing yep. anything based on the, exactly. on the, the session itself. So it should be fine for listening, I think. And uh, we, hope you, we hope you like it. Enjoy. Morning. Thank you, everybody, for making it all the way to the end of the uh, of the conference room here and finding the illustrious room two, where all the magic happens. <laughs> um, let me plug myself in. So we're here to talk to you today about the uh, the state of big data, but just a little bit about us, so you've got some idea who's prattling on at you. Um, my name's Dave Russell. I'm a principal solutions engineer at uh, HortonWorks. Um, I've been in kind of open source technologies and helping organizations deploy those for in excess of 17 years. I spent the last two years um, primarily focused around big data and uh, cybersecurity use cases. Uh, we're on channel two here. Channel two. All right. And that's me, uh, Jon Marschlein. I'm uh, currently working at Microsoft in the Hypo team for Azure on big data analytics, advanced analytics. Before that, I spent, I guess, the last 10 years in big data now. Working at some point at Hortonworks, working at the Dutch National Supercomputing Center, and a bunch of other places. 
And you, you may notice that uh, both of our profile pictures here uh, contain also the Roaring Elephant podcast logo. Um, we both, uh, we're founding co-hosts of the Roaring Elephant podcast, so if you're interested in big data generally and you enjoy this session, then we would certainly encourage you to uh, come and subscribe. There's a two-year backlog now, so if you start now, you should be able to catch up in a couple of months. <laughs> Indeed. Right, so with that, let's get on to our first topic. Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit different. Um, you're not going to see lots and lots of text on slides. No. Uh, we're just going to talk to you. And we have a rolling counter of six minutes with each topic. So we are actually going to be cut off by our <laughs> slides, um, which is going to be interesting. So we'll see how this goes. Anyway, first topic for, was the adoption of big data. Indeed. So I think it's a more of a general thing to start with. I mean, big data at the moment, where is it today? And we kind of came to the conclusion that it's here. It's not coming. It's not in the future. It's here today. Yeah, I think it's and not just that it's here, but it's widespread. It's commonplace now. And if you look at um, what the majority of organizations are doing, it's not just the, the Web 2.0 organizations nope. that are using big data. You've got, you know, national services like the, the Dutch police using it. You've got, um, you know, you do have the, the new generation of companies that are displacing the old. I mean, who here has bought a CD recently? <laughs> I'm guessing not very many. Um, you know, streaming services have displaced those, and they're using big data for things like, um, you know, prediction as to what songs you'd like to listen to next. Yeah, you actually see today that where the first adopters have already done this and it's working and it's good for them, that now the companies you wouldn't expect doing this actually are jumping onto this. Things like predictive maintenance in anything, basically, from, from TVs to anything. Things like uh, insurance companies doing the as-you-drive insurance pricing, things like that. So all this stuff is basically valid in the big data world because you have the big data available there. Yeah. And everything that can build on top of that, of course. In many cases, though, it starts with some relatively simple sort of implementations. So people often start off with something simple like an active archive. Mm. There's a very famous um, use case implementation by British Airways. Um, about, I would guess about four years ago now, they implemented the first piece of their data lake kind of journey, and that was an active archive deployment. Just the process of doing an active archive use case actually saved them enough money that it funded the first year of their entire big data program. That's servers, that's software subscriptions, that's training for their people. And that's actually a very good point because one of the main reasons that big data projects fail is because you don't have direct, I call it ROI in mind. You have to have a project that's not just something you play with. It has to be a project that actually makes you money so you can invest it by to expand your whole ecosystem at that point. And a lot of companies... They hear this big data thing, we need to do something in advanced analytics, so let's just do, I don't know, Logstash for, for whatever reason. That doesn't work. Because then you learn something, that's fine. And that's for personal education, that's great. But for a company, for a corporation, you need to have a certain return on investment, even if it's not money, but just being able to show that what you're doing is actually worth something, actually adding something to your company's bottom line in some way or fashion, or else you will not be able to continue with this. Yeah, so sometimes we talk about um, IT organizations starting the big data journey, and they start it with a mindset of, if we build it, they will come, they being the business mm. in that case. And in the majority of cases, it doesn't yeah, work. It can happen. Sometimes it does happen that way, but that's more of the exception than the rule, basically. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's not the way that we would typically recommend. We typically <laughs> recommend, like, do something that's going to deliver value to the business, do something that's going to 
you know, you can easily connect to the data sources you need to make something happen. Yeah. It'll also help you with the choice of the technology you're going to be using. Because uh, in the early days, four, five, six years ago, being, being doing big data was easy. You, you took a Hadoop uh, distribution, installed it, and you had big data. Today, what you see, the, the biggest change today in the, in the whole big data ecosphere is that the fact that it's no longer a monolithical application. It's a connection, connect, a connection of a lot of technologies in your company that's going to be adding up to your data lake concept at that point. By having a clear vision of what you want to do, you'll have a better chance of picking out the right technologies that you need at that point. Because at this point, it's a huge amount of choice out there. There's a, an infographic on the internet that shows you the a big data, a big data ecosphere or something it's called. An ecosystem. Ecosystem. Yeah. And like five years ago, it was like four different things in there. And today, it's, it's, it's horrible. You can't even say. <laughs> I can't find it's, myself anymore. It's one of those images you need to zoom around to actually <laughs> understand what's going on. So just having a clear idea of what you want to do really helps there. Do you want to talk about, a bit about fragmentation? Well, I was doing that already with the changing of the monolithical thing to the bigger thing. And the thing I want to end with that, actually, is if you're starting to do this and you're alone in this, you don't know it yet, try to get some help. And there's help available in a lot of ways. Get a good partner, perhaps. Get onto meetups, get onto podcasts, things like that. Because there's so much out there, it's impossible to know it all. You have to do things by trying. You will fail. Failing is good. And if you fail, share it with the world. That way, everybody learns from it. Indeed. Um, failing is learning, in this case. And yep. it very much falls into fail fast, so that you can actually iterate, iterate on that. But when we talk about fragmentation... Oh, I forgot something, apparently. <laughs> some people also think that Hadoop is dead. Oh, yes. And, Multiple and, times. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's been one of those things that's been dead and come back again time and time again. The reality is the that... Hadoop, the elephant, uh, it's all still very much there. It's still very much alive. But the, the story and how organizations are consuming it is changing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are spinning up you know, separate environments where they have um, you know, separate Spark environments, you know, completely separated and segregated from any core Hadoop environment. And you know, they don't see that as being Hadoop. But actually, Spark is just another element of the larger Hadoop story. So it's all still very much yeah. connected. Yeah, and, and it covers its whole MapReduce in the end. And I know MapReduce been, has been dead a long time ago as well, but MapReduce is just a concept, it's an idea. It's been invented by the Greeks, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> but the whole Spark thing and everything, oh, that's our slide saying you have to speed up. But this whole thing is still very much alive. It just, it's under the covers, you don't see it anymore. And that's one part of making it easier today to start with big data. A lot of the polish is in place already. So I guess to conclude, what we're really saying is um, it is here. It is very much you know, present right now. This is something that you absolutely need to be doing within your organization. Whether you're small, medium, or large, there's still a place for big data. We have people that uh, come to us initially saying, well, we've only got you know, 10 terabytes, 100 terabytes of data. You know, we're not really a big data company. Mm -hmm. It's not about the data you have. It's about the data that you can bring in to support your larger story or to find out what else is going on, yeah. whether that's social data, location data, <laughs> anything like this. And also one of the original definitions of big data was the three Vs, the velocity, variety, and volume. Yep. So size is not everything. Things like IoT are also very important in big data, of course. And variety, the whole SQL versus non-SQL, structure versus non-structure. So any, any of those things can actually give you a, a venue into the big data world. And once you're there... Well, he just said, if you build it, they probably won't come. Well, if you build it and you have something working on it, then it really starts exploding very fast. Yeah. And most of my customers I work with, that's their biggest issue. Once they have something running, they've <laughs> overcome all the criticism, and then, oh, this actually works. 
and then they get buried across uh, uh, under a lot of stuff, which is a good thing. Yeah, actually, my my favorite point is like after a after a customer's done their first couple of use cases, they've done their first few implementations. My my favorite time to visit someone is just after that, because what they actually <laughs> yeah. do then is they they're really excited about what they've just done, and they then tell you that there's there's like the whole rest of the business has just woken up to this fact, and they all come pouring in with hey. We heard you've started doing some of this. We'd like to add some of that. And it kind of, it's really that snowball effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next one. All right. So now, on-prem, cloud, and hybrid. Yeah, you decided you want to do big data. Now, where do you do it? Do you own your own data center? Do you go into the cloud? Do you need that, that hybrid thing? So you do the on-prem first? I, I'm Azure, so I'm, I'm, I'm cloud. <laughs> <laughs> cloud native, as they say. So um, really, on-prem is where, where this all started. Um, and when we're talking about on-prem, we're talking about you know traditional servers, data centers. You know maybe you've got half a rack of servers. Maybe you've got an entire data center full of full of big data. If you have, I'd love to come talk to you. <laughs> um, but really, what we're talking about here is um, you know large-scale physical servers. We tend to talk physical rather than virtualized, just because of the scale of things. Virtualization was very much a focus. Um, when the workloads were outpacing the scale of the hardware. You know, multiple different workloads, different operating cycles, sweat those assets harder by running multiple workloads on that. Really, when we're talking about big data platforms, they are kind of virtualization, but more at the data layer rather than at the underlying infrastructure layer. So, you know, you run a, a large-scale job on a on a Hadoop environment, like every single disk in every single machine and every single CPU can light up. Not a great use case necessarily. <laughs> for, well, yeah, hopefully will light up. So on-prem environments tend to be where um, a lot of people used to start. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the case today. And that was particularly true in the case of the old Hadoop is big data. That's just a monolithic installation on your cluster. You install Hadoop and that's it. Putting a virtual virtualization layer in there doesn't make sense at all. Any RAID stuff, don't do that. Modern world, however, you get things like IoT coming in, things like machine learning, deep learning, all things around, add on top of that. And at some point, that simple cluster does not work anymore because you don't need those 50 nodes, which expensive GPUs, every day of the week. You only need them when you retrain your neural network. And that's where the cloud environment really helps out because it allows you, well, the whole cloud promise, right? Flexibility, ease of use, having the hardware available when it's there. It's all very useful in the big data world. So a lot of people go to the cloud for that reason. But there are some caveats. There are some problems with both approaches as well. And one of the things is, where is your data coming from? If your data is coming from the cloud, if you're scraping it from websites, from whatever, pulling all that to your own data center might not be a good idea. Keeping it in the cloud might be a better idea at that point. There's because the whole thing with big data, just going to finish this, is data has gravity. You don't want to move it around too much, and you don't want to duplicate it. Exactly, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I know. Exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> so we talk, we talk about this kind of data having gravity, and in in the old world, it made perfect sense. Like all your all your organization's data was all within the data centers. So why wouldn't you have this all on prem? But that whole picture is is kind of shifting. So now when we talk about data having gravity. If you're looking at a whole bunch of IoT-based sources, maybe stuff's coming streaming over the over the internet, why would you bother, exactly as Jan says, why would you bother sucking all that down to a local data center? Also, maybe workloads are also changing. I mean, the power of cloud is really this ability to cycle things up and down, really at a whim. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to know that 
uh, I must have these particular resources at these particular times. Yeah, yeah. There's also a differentiation between a, what I call a long-running cluster and an ephemeral cluster. There's some big data clusters with big data environments. You start them up today, and they'll be running for five years, and maybe more. That's a whole different way of looking at an installation as a configuration, as a sysadmin, as a DevOps, how to, how to put this together, than if you're talking about a data scientist that needs a Hadoop, a Spark cluster, whatever, for four hours. You will not spend three days building up that environment for this person, which is going to use only for four hours. That doesn't compute. So in this case, also, cloud gives you a lot of possibilities to do. Well, there's there's this phrase, Hadoop as a service. I haven't really seen it yet, but apparently it exists somewhere. But having more flexible, more quicker deployments of Hadoop or Spark or whatever big data environments is available in the cloud, where, where on premise, that usually causes a problem because you need to have some hardware, which means getting all the new clusters. So that takes more time. And again, short-running clusters, you'd also, well, you always have to take care of security. We'll be talking about that later. But yep. for a short-running cluster, you might have a one-person cluster. Then you don't have to put that much emphasis on it. Just make sure it's well-surrounded. It's, uh, it's uh, isolated from the rest of the network. So there's different ways of looking at it and how you're going to use the cluster, which could actually cause you to go on-prem versus in the cloud. That being said... He's um, not agreeing. Well, so I, I am agreeing, but with caveats. So one of the phrases that you certainly used to hear a lot, you're not hearing quite so much anymore, but you will still hear people say, usually people with very airy-fairy job titles, will talk about <laughs> bursting to the cloud. And uh, say so my particular viewpoint is that if someone's talking about bursting to the cloud in a big data sense, they're lying to you. Um, Jan would say misleading, because he's far more politically correct than I am. <laughs> Um, which may surprise some people. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> but when we're talking about bursting to the cloud, the, the typical use case or the typical description for bur cloud bursting is that I'm running something on-prem, I want to run more of this, I'll just burst to the cloud. Cloud bursting with well, big the data... The big problem platforms. there is your data gravity. Yeah. If your data is on-premise... You can have some compute spun up in the cloud, but if you have to move a petabyte of data first before that cloud thing can start working, that takes a week, at least. So this whole cloud bursting, you can do it, but for me, cloud bursting is more than having, more in the sense of having your own long-running cluster on-premise, and when that data scientist wants to have a bit of the data to play with for four hours, yep. put him on a cloud somewhere. And basically, that's the reason why we had the third word on the, on the title there, the hybrid solution. Yeah. Because a hybrid solution, I mean, whenever you have a choice between two things, the best choice is, is usually take both. Because neither of two things will ever do everything for you. So a hybrid solution for big data, for cloud, for technologies that you actually use in your big data environment is always the best option there. Yeah. Um, the, other, the other way that we see hybrid yeah, environments being used fairly <laughs> aggressively, and our slides are telling us to kick on, are in kind of DR environments, disaster oh, yeah. recovery. It makes perfect sense. Cloud platforms have embedded storage platforms within them. You know, why would you spin up native storage platforms when it doesn't make any sense? So it's always need to make use yeah. of the, the value adds that a cloud service yeah. provides you. Particularly the, the ephemeral compute in the cloud. You can actually have all your data there, but not have any CPUs running until you really need them for disaster recovery uh, cases, stuff like that. You still need to duplicate your data, or most of your data but it does give you a, a better DR solution. Because yep. also, if anybody ever asks you to back up your data lake, uh, turn around and go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're asking the wrong questions. Um, so I guess one of the, 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 when we're talking about cloud on-prem hybrid, the answer, like the answer to many good IT questions, is it depends. Okay? And 
it's going to be a mixture of those things, depending on your use case, depending on your data, depending mm. on where you see your journey heading. Yeah. And don't count on, I'll start on-prem and move to cloud, or the other way around. That usually doesn't work out that way. Yeah, it, it's going to be data all gravity. journey. When you start, you'll stop. Yeah. All right. So and That's not important. <laughs> so no, no big data session would be complete without mentioning things like security and governance. Um, you can't go more than uh, a week at a time at the moment, it would seem, without hearing about some sort of disastrous security breach or data leakage or, you know, thank you very much, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, <laughs> for sponsoring this particular section. Hey, they made the people aware of it, so that's a good thing. <laughs> this is true. This is true. They're very aware of it now. We weren't going to do this, going to do it anyway. Who knows what Kerberos is? Who likes and loves Kerberos? <laughs> <laughs> Who thinks Kerberos is dead? Good. Because I've talked to a lot of IT departments that do not want to bring a big data concept in there because it uses Kerberos, and Kerberos is all dated, right? That's gone. That's replaced by XAML, uh, all other kinds of single sign-on stuff. Oh, awesome. Oh, out stuff. That, the, that's not true. I mean, Kerberos is a lot of stuff that single sign-on cannot do, and you need Kerberos to have machines talking to each other in a secure fashion. There is no way around it. The only other thing that's around it, hey, I'm from Microsoft, so I have to mention Active Directory, which is actually Kerberos and LDAP put together, right? So it's still the same thing. Yeah. But if you think about security in this kind of world, like everybody knows the RBAC, role-based access control, where you have so a series of users, you have their roles, and those roles get, grant them access to certain data. Now, that's a start, though. That's not where this needs to end. The way that, yeah, so the way that this is kind of evolving is really the merging of security and governance. They're no longer two separate kind of silos of thought. They're completely integrated. So when we talk about, you know, role-based access control being the start, what we're really talking about is this evolving into tag-based access control, asset-based access control. So as your data is kind of ingested, as it's first touched by your platform, you tag that data, that those tags can mean a variety of different things, like mm -hmm. this data contains PII or personally identifiable information, for example. And this can also mean that you have to split the responsibility of security into two different departments in your company. On the one hand, you have the data wrangler, the data engineer, or whatever you want to call in your company, which actually gets in the data, sees, okay, this has credit card information, I'm going to tag this thing as personal information. On the other side, you have perhaps the HR department that hires somebody like Dave who should not be able to see any PI data. Trust me, he shouldn't. Definitely true. And that way, with these labels, you can have your system automatically, I'm not going to use the word detect, but it's not detect, but decide by putting it all together that he can see or not see. You have to have a masked view or a column hidden or something like that. And in a big data environment, that's the only way it's going to work in the long end because it's just too much data. It's too much schemas. It's too much information. You can't do it by handle. If you do it, if you going to uh, depend on ACLs for all the security, it's going to be a nightmare. That's a lot of ACLs. <laughs> which is good, which means you need a, you need a big data platform for all your ACL <laughs> governance. So that's also good. So the, the way that this has sort of continued, though, is if you think about um, things like GDPR, you can't, again, you, know, you can't move without hearing the, uh, the four letters of, of GDPR. Big data can certainly help you with GDPR, it's not a silver bullet by any stretch of the imagination. And in some cases, you could argue it makes it worse because it gives you the ability to correct, collect more and more data. Um, but 
you know the way that this you know the way that this really has to work is that you have to have the lineage of that data from its very collection all the way through so you can understand which people have touched it what people have done with it what they've data sources they've joined to produce you know, hybrid data sources at the other side. Yeah, and I've actually seen uh, uh, companies introduce a, a data lake concept to enforce their security because by putting it all in a data lake you have a kind of a walled garden maybe a bad analogy, but you actually have control, you can monitor, you can put on those, uh, those rules in there. So big data is a problem with the governance because you have to do all the governance in there, but it can also actually help you to make sure that it works. It's a great way to eliminate shadow IT. Yeah. And shadow IT is, in the GDPR world, something you don't want. Yeah. So the other thing, of course, is to think about, when you're talking about security and governance, you're talking about defense in depth. So it's not just Kerberos and integration with your AD or, or LDAP environment. It's not just things like role-based access control and asset-based access control. It's perimeter security. It's about ensuring that all these things are linked to yeah. the variety of different corporate systems. It's about dealing with encryption yeah. and ingest. And on a very basic level, it also deals with do not duplicate your data. Use dynamics, use virtual tables, use serialization, deserialization techniques to, do, to avoid duplicating your data. Because anytime you duplicate your data, you kind of double your GDPR problem again. Yeah, indeed. So I think... Sure, this thing is working because we're at uh, 53. No, it's definitely working. But I think what we need to talk about is the fact that um, really... Ah. <laughs> uh, in conclusion, um, <laughs> security and governance are not real problems in the big data world. These are all solvable. We have the technology. But it's pretty much new technology, so you should look further than your usual suspects. Because the usual suspects will tell you they can do it all because they want to pull it all on their end. Be careful. Really look at the information they give you, test it out. I mean, typically in a big data world, POCing doesn't really matter anymore because big data works. That's fine. When you talk about these things, that's where I would still look at a POC or a pilot or something like that. Yeah. So, skip on. Last topic. Indeed. So... This being a DevOps conference, we thought it'd be useful to talk about DevOps and big data. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it's kind of close to home because when I was working at uh, Sara here in, uh, in Holland, I was a sysadmin and I became a DevOps because of big data. Because big data, in my, in my opinion, in my experience, is one of the biggest growth gardens for DevOps and engineering. Because a simple sysadmin and separated uh, development groups on big data platforms typically don't work. Because your whole big data thing, your Hadoop, your advanced analytics, it's a kind of middleware, which you, it's neither this, it's neither that. It has to be in the middle somewhere. So that's why I see at our customer sites as well, at the big, at the big traditional slow customers, the points where DevOps actually start getting their, the, the whole movement going, let's, go, let's say, in the bigger customers out there, typically it's in an advanced analytics environment. Yeah. And also I would say that the, you, you tend to see big data programs bringing together you know, tiger teams or centers of excellence around things like this, where you know they will bring in people from the variety of dis different disciplines mm -hmm. within an organization to work as part of a closer knit team. Yeah, the kind of virtual horizontal, virtual grouping, whatever your company is doing today, the other way. <laughs> um, but having a lot of people from different things, having security in there from day one, don't wait until it's developed and then have security take a look at it. That's too late. Having the business also look at it, but again, from the from first point, make sure that what you're doing has a, f a practical use, something that somebody will actually use in the end, so you can use it to show that it works and it can expand on it. Yeah. 
I think the other thing that um, you need to think about this is, you know, from an operational perspective, some things, some things don't really change. You've still got underlying infrastructure in some way, shape, or form. You've still got stuff that you need to, to patch and upgrade and update. And mm -hmm. one of the things that is different about what we're talking about today, and I've spent you know, time in scale-out systems and spent plenty of time in things like OpenStack and things like that, this is moving faster, as far as I'm aware, than any other kind of ecosystem out there. And this is both great, because this means that every day is new, new fun tools day, <laughs> um, but this also means that it's challenging for large organizations because they're not used to the rapid pace of updates. They're not used to um, you know, the, the, just the rate of change that you see with these kind of big data platforms. Um, you know, something like, uh, like the, the Apache Metron um, cybersecurity um, sort of suite, there are major feature-bearing releases every three months, and there are a variety of minor releases in between, and that's not even one of the, the fastest moving. Yeah, the whole patching thing is a very uh, problematic issue, basically, because on the one hand, a typical sysadmin wants to have all his Linux patches rolled out on day one, because that's what you do, right, as a sysadmin? It doesn't work that way in a big data world, because you have... Okay, you install your patches. First, you read all the readme notes, right? You read all the, the why the patch was there. You read in detail, go through it. In the big data world, that's step one. Then you go to the GitHub of the Apache source to see what they think of that patch. Because it's all so interconnected, which is a good thing, but it's a bad thing, because you really have to have the flexibility. Typically, if you're using a product from a vendor, from a distributor somewhere, they will tell you when to upgrade. So my conversation with IT usually go then, do not do patching until this person tells you you should. I can't do that. If you don't trust them, then you really have to do it yourself, and that's a hard, that's a tough job. I mean, if you're doing something like, I don't know, a web server on a Linux station, yeah, you can install the patches, that will work, it's not an issue. But these things have so many interconnecting cogs and wheels, it's really a task in itself to keep, keep abreast of that. And hell, if somebody else wants to put in a little extra thing on there, that can have repercussions on the whole thing. So it does sound very, very difficult. Luckily, it's not that difficult anymore because things have changed. The open source community has on a lot already to make it enterprise-ready, as it's called. I call it usable <laughs> by adding things like GUIs, like user interfaces, like uh, checking of syntax. Because in the early days, you had an, the config file is an XML file. One <laughs> spelling mistake in there, the whole cluster went down. Things like Ambari and Navigator and yeah. things like that. There's a lot of tools in there already to make it work, make it work more easily or make it harder to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. I mean, in terms of things like, as you would say, ease of use or make it usable or enterprise ready, you know, there are things like full rolling upgrades of platforms, which becomes incredibly important when you're talking about not just hundreds of servers, but potentially <laughs> thousands of servers within a single cluster. You can't just do an upgrade of that when it's dealing with production data, yep. real-time data, streaming workloads 24-7. You know, downtime doesn't exist for those kind of platforms. And also, the question about having a dev test acceptance production environment that usually does well usually that often doesn't happen in the big data world because to really test something, you have to have the data to test it. And if you have a petabyte of data, just making a copy of that petabyte for your testing environment that doesn't work. So having your testing on a limited amount of data is a still a valid test? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Same thing with IoT. You can test something if a WebSocket works, but you only works know if it works well if you have those hundred thousand connections at the same time happening, right? So a lot of times in a big data environment, you see that those things are meshed together. So the whole continuous integration, continuous development is very much present in here. Having infrastructure as a service is also something that's very useful in a big data environment to be able to yeah, get that flexibility in there. 
Yeah, in fact, that whole kind of dev, UAT, prod kind of cycle still exists, but it exists in a, in a slightly different form. Yep. So I, I tend to very often see uh, dev, dev, UAT, prod existing within physical environments, but they tend to be much smaller than you would expect. And really, that's because they're used for kind of infrastructure level testing. Yep. You know, dev, UAT, and prod actually tend to all exist within production when it comes to the data, the workloads, and everything like that. And they segregate these environments. We're being kicked on again. <laughs> but they segregate those environments with capacity scheduling and things like that. So you have sort of a virtualized environment, if you like, for dealing with those different kind of workloads. Yeah, and just to give the, 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 the fundamental message here, it's, it's safe to actually do this. There are ways to segregate parts of your big data platform into a kind of dev area and production area that they don't clash in each other. It's, I guess, more dangerous than really having two separate clusters, but there are a lot of ways of mitigating it in a very easy fashion, so it's just possible. And some tools like Apache NiFi, which we're both fanboys of, True. actually have this uh, configuration, continuous integration in the interface itself. We can just make it an IoT flow, change it, add it, add it, add a branch, test it out, and then disconnect the original one. It's just built into the tool itself that way. So it is a bit of a different way of looking at typical development uh, operations, development cycles. Indeed. I mean, conclusion for this has to be... Yeah, like, well, <laughs> there are a variety of different conclusions. Which one do we want to draw? But I would say... No. Um, one of the major conclusions for this is everybody's hiring. Like You can see out here that uh, everybody's hiring. Every single booth has a we're hiring and a whole bunch of job boards. Um, mm -hmm. But that is uh, even more true within yeah. the, the kind of the big data world as well. And this kind of integration layer between. Yeah, I can guarantee you from personal experience, if you do go in depth on big data, uh, the sky's the limit. You get a lot of chances you wouldn't get that otherwise. It's still relatively easy to get in on the, on the base floor, let's say, because there's a lot of demand at the moment, and there's a lot of demand that isn't visible. So getting into this, uh, in the, into this space can really be rewarding because you have a job that's really going to change every day of the week. You're going to be talking to people you've never talked to before. You're going to do things that are a lot of fun. And a lot of sleepless nights as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes that's it part fun. of it. <laughs> so, so, I We've reached the, in my point, the most fun part of the entire session. Let's see if there are any questions out there. Anything on technologies, on how to do this stuff, anything. I mean, if, if you don't ask questions, we'll keep on talking. You don't want that. This is true. Come on, you, you have questions. Come on. Yes. Oh, yeah, go ahead. So the the question was really um, big data big data platforms have had um, container support for a long time you know but it's been largely driven by yarn yarn for those that aren't aware it stands for yet another resource negotiator yes you got to love open source projects and their funky naming um, but when we talk about containerization in a yarn world we're talking about Java containers now obviously containerization. Um, now, when you talk to people about that, they're very much focused on things like uh, Kubernetes and other things like that. The way that this is evolving is in a myriad of different ways. Um, later on this year, around about middle of the year, 
you'll see um, a, a major sea change in the world of kind of Hadoop-related technologies as version 3.0 arrives. That actually includes support for running um, Docker container-based solutions on top of Yarn. So we're seeing these kind of worlds blend. We were talking about data having gravity earlier. And so one of those things is, well, why would you spin up a separate container platform that you then have to shuffle the data in between if you can spin up containers on the location where your data already is? Um, you know, yeah, because that's basically where the whole question came from before it was actually in the code, is I want to have this data, I have a machine learning model that's producing stuff, and now I have to present it in some way. I have to have a web interface, uh, a web page that just shows you the number or a dashboard. You could run that on your Hadoop cluster itself, but then it's kind of interfering with what Yarn is already trying to schedule, which is annoying. And by having a Docker container runnable on the Yarn orchestrator itself in your big data cluster, you can actually put your web interface, your interaction, your upload functionalities, things like that, in a Docker container on the same cluster, making sure that whenever somebody uses that, it doesn't impede your production queries or whatever. So that's where they actually came from. And in Treat, although they're going a whole leap further by just having Kubernetes on top of your Hadoop cluster if you want to. Is it something you should do? You never should do anything. You should have a reason for it, of course. The moment that you have a Hadoop cluster that only runs Docker containers, don't use a Hadoop cluster. <laughs> use, a, use something else. Use a, use a uh, Kubernetes or a Mesos or whatever cluster. So always make sure that you use the stuff for what it's built for, what it's good for. But for those fringe things, it's definitely useful to be able to use a Docker container on there. The secondary thing I see for Docker containering is uh, deep learning. A lot of people don't do deep learning on that big data. Now, machine learning is easy. You have Spark, you have Flink, you have a lot of stuff out there. Scikit-learn works as well. That'll work on your Hadoop cluster, just work on your cluster where it's built, and that's, that's fine, that's great. But deep learning, that's like the next level in there, is, a, is still today a hell of library versions and DLLs and Python versions, which kind of crush each other. So having deep learning TensorFlow on your Hadoop cluster will cause problems, unless, hey, if I could put it in a Docker container, it solves all my problems. All my library versions are containerized, and that works. And that's where I think in the future, where my first example, the web interface, is more how it works, the reasons for the past. If you talk today, that's basically why it's going to be used uh, much more widespread, because yeah. you're having uh, deep learning as the next, uh, next holy grail, right? Yeah. Answer the question? Sure. I'm um, wondering, suppose I'm a company that's like have a... Oh, hang on, there's a, there's a mic coming. <laughs> So suppose I work for a company that has a business case that big data might apply as a solution. Um, are there any um, guidelines uh, how to make decisions about like technical decisions or whether it's really worth the investment? And even better, to have some numbers to compare it. Yeah, yeah. So um, any of the, the major kind of vendors or consultancy should have some sort of value engineering type team that can, that can come and talk to you about the use case that you've got, the data you've got, and the value that that could deliver to your organization. And it should absolutely be based on metrics of projects that that organization has done before in a similar space or with similar sort of uh, inputs. The, the, kind of, the other part of your question was around, uh, I think was around kind of different technologies and how to choose what. You know, we talk about... In the, in, the, in the Hadoop and big data world, we talk about the animals in the zoo, all the various animals in the zoo, and how on earth do you choose, like, which do you use 
do you use Spark or do you use Flink or do you use... You pick you know, the nicest logo. Yeah, that, that, that's one way to go about it. I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah. Although Flink does have, in my opinion, one of the nicest logos. Nice yeah, maybe. Make your point. <laughs> so my point is, um, sometimes like, it will come down to it depends. It will always come down to it depends. Mm. But sometimes it's going to be driven by, not so much by what your use case is, because multiples of these tools can solve your use case but it's going to be based around, well, what skills do you already have within your organization? Yeah. Or what skills does your organization aspire to have? You know, what are you, are you leaning towards in the future? So that can also help shape that kind of journey. Yeah, and apart from the commercial partners, let's say, one of the big, nice things about the whole big data world is very open. I mean, the biggest companies in the world that are working with this stuff are very open about what they do. They won't give you the, the final secret sauce, but they will give a lot of information about how it works, what it works, a lot of competitors, when it's going on big data, they actually talk to each other. Last uh, couple of weeks ago at the Hadoop Summit, in, sorry, DataWorks Summit, we actually had BMW, Renault, and Audi, I think it was. Yep. Three car manufacturers talking to each other how they did their big data. That's unseen in the whole car industry. So just look on the internet, on the, on the, on the other kinds of social media, stuff like that, to see if somebody else has done something similar and get information there. Because more often than not, the, the information on the internet is actually correct when it's all talking about big data. Just make sure you kind of vet who you're listening to. Don't go to the to, to, to Forbes.com or something. <laughs> Just make sure you go to the, the guys actually write this stuff and listen to podcasts, of course, that also. <laughs> Just to answer the question. All There's right. another question back there somewhere. Same question? <laughs> okay. That's too bad. Well, another question. Oh, we got... How do you uh, see the, the field? The, I see uh, Hadoop. Uh, as, uh, you talked on your podcast about Spark that uh, was going it alone a little bit. I see also Elasticsearch. Uh, they say we're actually faster. How do you see this, uh, this field? Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think competition is good, yes. right? And competition breeds innovation. You, you know, the, the, for me, the classic example of this is SQL on Hadoop. Like, there are more SQL on Hadoop <laughs> engines than I think anything else. You know, is there one that is always better for everything? No, absolutely not. Yeah. Are they all improving? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Do they have different areas of specialization where they're slightly better? Well, there's a couple of differentiations that you can make. Now, one first thing you said, this one is the fastest now. Because <laughs> it's always uh, jumping over the other one, right? So whatever's best today is going to be not the best tomorrow because the, the second best to today is going to look at the best today to kind of jump them over again. So that's the whole fun thing of it. Now, there are a couple of things because you mentioned Spark specifically, and that's the differentiation between having your uh, analytics in the memory or not in memory. So the advantage of having analytics in memory with Spark and Blaze and stuff like that is it's a lot faster because memory is faster than disk, I hope, obviously. The disadvantage is it's a lot more expensive because you need to have a petabyte of memory if you want to have a petabyte of data in there. So it's always a cost-value. Uh, in the end, they're still doing MapReduce in the end. They're still doing uh, the, the simplest multiprocessing available because the whole big data thing is built upon it has to be economically viable. If you're spending millions on a big data platform, don't spend it on the hardware. <laughs> spend it on the intelligence. Spend it on the people. Yeah, Because that's where the differentiation lies. So I think we have pretty much run out of time, but I would, if I could finish with one final thought, no. maybe two final thoughts, See? <laughs> uh, I would say that big data as a platform should either be saving your organization's money, significant money, or making them money with new business opportunities, preferably both of those things at the same time. 
Um, and if I were to add a second thought, I would say, please join the Roaring Elephant podcast, subscribe, have a listen. Let us know what you want to hear, because we're always open to suggestions from the audience. Absolutely. Because we only have that much invent- uh, imagination ourselves, so we need to have some pointers from people. So, um, any Hope more you- questions? No. Oh. Hope you enjoyed the session. Thank you very much. Yes, so that was the uh, Code Motion session. Um, I hope you liked it. If you want us to do more of these kind of live things, uh, I'd say let us know and we will feel uh, adequately motivated. <laughs> Indeed. And yeah, really, thanks to the, thanks to the Code Motion group for Definitely. reaching out to us and uh, you know, suggesting that we might like to be a part of it. It was, it was great fun. Yep. And uh, we got some great feedback from the session as well. Yeah, that also felt like a good, uh, good event. The people there were fairly happy uh, walking around everywhere. So uh, a lot was learned, a lot was uh, done about it. But for us, that is all the time you have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of uh, visual bite-sized big data. We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelf.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter, well, mostly me then, because Dave still hates Twitter. Hmm? Yep. You can use the at Hadoopcast tag to find us there. Or you can send us email at podcast at roaringelf.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback you may have. Until next audio-only time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. See you then.